Today, I'm speaking with Anne Applebaum. Anne is a columnist for the Washington Post and a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. She's also a visiting professor at the London School of Economics, where she runs ARENA, a program on disinformation and 21st century propaganda, resisting those things rather than producing them. She's formerly a member of the Washington Post editorial board, and she's also worked at The Spectator, The Evening Standard, The Daily and Sunday Telegraphs, The Economist, The Independent. Her writing has appeared everywhere, including the New York Review of Books and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And she's the author of two very well-regarded books. The first is Iron Curtain, which describes the imposition of Soviet totalitarianism in Central Europe after the Second World War. And her previous book, Gulag, A History, won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction in 2004. Now, as you'll hear, I've primarily been reading Anne in the Washington Post and following her on Twitter, where she's just been an assassin. Her commentary on Trump has been on point from the very beginning, practically from the moment he announced his candidacy. So I recommend that you follow her on Twitter. She's at Anne Applebaum, all one word. Needless to say, her expertise on Russia and propaganda is coming in especially handy these days. You'll hear that we recorded an addendum to this podcast because a few days after we recorded the initial conversation, events got quite colorful in the ongoing investigation into collusion between the president's team and the Russians. So we added about 10 minutes at the end to bring things as up to the minute as one can in a podcast like this. No doubt the story will have changed since, but I suspect the moral core of the story is the same, and uh, that's what we talk about. Now, of course, you all know what I think about Trump, and I know that many of you are getting bored with my howls of pain, and so I haven't been saying much on my own. Instead, I've been bringing guests on who have a lot more to say than I do, people who are far more knowledgeable about politics and the inner workings of governments and the relevant history. So in this vein, I spoke with Gary Kasparov and David Frum, and now I'm bringing you Anne Applebaum. Enjoy. I am here with Anne Applebaum. Anne, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Well, listen, I've been following you on Twitter. Avidly is, is not too strong a term. You are among the few people who have just been devastating against our current president. And um, I would put you up there with David Frum in terms of your, the, the quality of your the stuff you've been circulating on social media about him and in response to his antics. So first, let me praise you for that. It may seem like a trivial thing, but it's, I think it's of immense social importance. Well, uh, thank you. I'm I'm not sure is it is it flattering or not flattering to be known for your Twitter feed, but I, um, I I'll take it as a compliment. I think we fight in the uh, the trench we are given, and um, it seems to be a, an important one to occupy at the moment. Before we jump into the matter at hand, can you just say a little bit about your background as a journalist? How is it that you have come to do the work you're doing now? I actually, uh, I entered journalism in 1989. Um, I began as a stringer living in Warsaw. Actually, late 1988 is when I first moved there. Uh, And I was a stringer. I was in my mid-20s, writing for British newspapers, writing for The Economist magazine, actually, and The Independent newspaper um, and and others. And um, 
partly because I've sensed that it was an interesting time to be there and partly because I was just very lucky, I wound up covering the collapse of communism and the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, not only in Poland, but in the whole region. You know, and I think that experience of seeing a tyranny collapse and seeing democracy replace it, I then had an occasion to watch the, those countries change over the subsequent 20 years. Um, is probably the was probably the formative political experience of my life. So that might make me a little different from other American journalists. And that 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 was the thing that interested me the most, and that I wrote about the most um, over a couple of decades. Um, I, I took that in several different directions. I I wrote a couple of history books. I was fascinated by the history of the region. I wrote a history of the gulag system, which was the Soviet camp system. And then I also wrote a history of the Sovietization of Eastern Europe after the war. So in a way, the opposite of the process that I observed, I, you know, you know, what did totalitarianization look like? I'd witnessed democratization. And this was the opposite process I, I wrote as a history book. Mm. Um, but I've also worked as a journalist in Britain. Um, I worked on the editorial board of the Washington Post, where I wrote about healthcare and all kinds of all kinds of ordinary things. But I suppose that experience of um, it being con constantly con trying to understand what was dictatorship, what was democracy, what were the constituent parts of both, you know, what made people um, adhere to one system or the other has something that's been, I've been interested in my whole professional life. And I didn't think that those would be important things to know and understand in following and interpreting an American election and an American presidency, but it turned out that they were. Yeah. Um, and, it, it, you know, if, if I had any insight into Donald Trump in his early days and, you know, from last summer and last spring, it was because I saw, you know, immediately saw that much of what he was doing was, you know, these were tactics that came from Ukraine. I mean, I recognized, you know, Ukrainian politics, which I also write about. Um, I recognized the use of tactics, the, the way he was using social media, the way he ran his, um, his electoral events, and they looked to me like things I'd seen in Eastern Europe. And I think that somewhat weird insight um, might have turned out to matter because it looks like he, he was influenced by, um, he's, well, certainly he's a kid, a campaign manager who had long Ukrainian experience. And I think that explains some of his, some of his electoral tactics anyway. Obviously, that's much of the reason why we're speaking now, because you were so early and so clear on these parallels, and we're in the process of discovering how relevant your expertise is at the moment. We'll get into talking about the investigation and what evidence is there or seems likely to be there of a connection between the Trump campaign and Russia. But just briefly, how would you describe yourself politically? How do you come to this? What are, what are your political biases and commitments? You know, I, I, I always thought of myself as being center right. You know, I thought I kind of I was very happy in the Tory party in the 1990s when I was living in Britain and I uh, was a British journalist. Um, I have voted Republican in the past, um, but I have this feeling that although my views haven't changed, I feel that the right um, actually, in the three countries that I remain connected to, which is Poland, um, the United States and Britain, the right has changed so much that it's left me somewhere else. I mean, somewhere, you know, in the center, um, mm. you know, it's hard, you know, I don't, I feel very out of touch with the current Republican party. Um, certainly since the Brexit vote, I feel out of touch with the Tory party. Um, and the Polish right has gone mad as well. It's a whole nother stories, but you know, I don't think I've changed. I mean, my views are the same as they were, 
um, you know, the same as they were 20 years ago. You know, I was sort of started out as an anti-communist. I was interested in, you know, small but efficient government. Um, I understand there has to be some public funding for some things. And, you know, of course, that will vary from country to country, depending on the, what people want. But I those views were in the 1990s, a kind of center-right views. Mm. And I'm not sure where they leave me now. Right. But you're not coming at this from the far left. You're not Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or no, Michael I'm not Moore. Yes. I'm not. I'm not Elizabeth Warren. I'm not Bernie Sanders. I'm not Michael Moore. And I mean, I, you know, I was, I was, you know, the Bernie Sanders candidacy is, of course, another interest. It was another interesting phenomenon of the last year. I didn't have any initial sympathy with it at all. I mean, as time went on, you know, I began to see. I began. I understand more why people were voting for them and why people were exciting for, why excited by them at this particular moment. But, but no, yeah. I mean, I come from. I mean, actually. You mentioned David Frum, who I think he's also been on your program. I mean, yeah. I, 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 for much of my life, I would have had trouble distinguishing myself from him, and as a in in terms of political views. I mean, we've differed about some things, but you know, sure, I, I used to write for the Weekly Standard. I used to write for the National Review. Um, mm. I was, you know, I don't know how people considered me because I don't, I'm not, you know, probably culturally different from some of the American right, but. Um, I was very happy in that position 10 years ago. And now, you know, I just don't know. Yeah, well, that strikes me as the most useful background to have at the moment, because what one can't allege about you and from and David Brooks and all the people who are center right and you know, who have been traditionally Republican or certainly more Republican than Democrat, you can't allege rank partisanship in your criticism of Trump which could be alleged of you know, anyone on the left, I don't think honestly at this point, but certainly that's what would strike the mind of any Trump defender. This is really the challenge before us, because I, I want to talk about Trump and Russia and fake news and all of these intersecting concerns. But the challenge is to say something that could be conceivably persuasive to someone who doesn't already agree with us. And this is the, the challenge I, I put to, to David in, in my podcast with him. It's a very high bar given the style of thinking on the other side. This just strikes me as almost an insuperable problem, given how the defenders of Trump don't acknowledge seemingly facts that you have to acknowledge to be sane with respect to his behavior and his, his obvious lying. I mean, the, the, most, the most alarming thing about Trump, from my point of view, is, and this is among many alarming things, but it's the degree to which he lies. And the most alarming thing about his defenders is their reluctance to admit this. I mean, they'll, they'll say things like, all politicians lie, as though Trump's lying was of the ordinary sort. So even in the most extreme case, you have something like the wiretapping allegation against President Obama. The most Republicans in Congress will say at this point is that the president is wrong. But that entirely misses the moral and political core of what happened here. I mean, the president wasn't wrong in the sense that he was mistaken. It's not like he has some information that he misinterpreted in good faith, as anyone might have. He made up this allegation to cause chaos, obviously to distract people from some other chaos he caused in a previous news cycle. And I mean, it's the kind of the political equivalent of a suicide bombing. It's one of these utterly malicious, slanderous, insane lies that you actually you stand no chance of being able to get away with. And he tells these sorts of lies all the time, lies of a sort that really cannot be believed, where his line is so obvious that it's the language game he's playing at that point isn't 
the ordinary attempt at deception. He's just trying to bowl you over with his disregard of the norms of political discourse. So, you know, as someone who's a a student of this style of communication, where you're kind of the strong man or the autocrat or the highly atypical political figure begins to communicate in this way. What, what, I mean, how, do you, how does this strike you? What are the consequences of having a president who not only can we not trust, but I mean, it's worse than that. We can trust him to lie always when he thinks it serves his purpose, even when it doesn't serve his purpose. How do you think about that? Well, I mean, first of all, I do want to come back to the question of how, you know, who, who is supporting him and why and how to reach them, because there's, that's actually something I'm working on now myself. But, but this question of why um, he's behaving the way he does, I mean, first of all, you said this is so atypical. It's actually not atypical. Um, you can look around the world and you can find similar leaders. I mean, the, the period that I worked on, you know, as a historian is a little different in that, um, you know, I was writing about the Communist parties, you know, in the 40s and 50s, um, and they combined lying with violence. So in other words, they lied about what they were doing. They lied about the purpose of it. They lied about their achievements. And then they suppressed people who disagreed with them. And I don't think we're um, dealing with anything like that in the United States. And I think it's important mm. to be clear about that. Um, this isn't a, nobody's being forced to believe him um, as they have been in other countries and other times and places. Um, lying, lying has been very, very central actually to a lot of 20th century governments. But I, the, the correct comparison to him though, is you, if you look at Putin and how he uses lies, and if you look at Chavez and how he used lies, um, you do see that there are, um, leaders who, you know, who have used them effectively. So Putin uses them in a very specific way. He lies, um, well, he and his and the media that he controls, and he, again, is in a different position because he controls all the media, which is, again, not the case with Trump. He's acting in a, in a different climate. But mm-hmm. um, he, he creates lies um, deliberately, partly to um, devalue the entire concept of truth. I mean, it's very interesting Look at what happened after the um, that that Malaysian plane crashed in Ukraine a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. Yep. It was shot down by we now know it was shot down by um, uh, Russian anti-aircraft weapons, and it it crashed in Ukraine, and um, many people died, including many Dutch people. What was what did the Russian media do after that? It didn't say we didn't do it. No, instead it released literally dozens of different explanations. You know, there was one explanation. It was the Ukrainians shot them down because they were aiming at Putin's plane. There was another explanation that said there were lots of dead people put on the plane on purpose and it was crashed on purpose, you know, as to discredit Russia. There was another, you know, you know very many of them were absurd, the, the, the explanations. But the pro- proliferation of them was such that it created this massive confusion around that event. And Radio for Europe did a very good... Um, series of interviews on, on in Moscow at that time right afterwards. And they asked people on the street, you know, who, why did that plane crash? And overwhelmingly, people said things like, oh, we have no idea and we'll never know. It's impossible to find out. You know, the truth cannot mm. be known. And the effect of Putin and Putin's press, um, the sort of multiplication of explanations was that it obfuscated the idea of truth. You know, people don't believe you can find out the truth. Um, and that's very useful to a dictator. You know, Putin doesn't want people, people, he doesn't want people to believe anything because, you know, maybe somebody will eventually print, for example, 
how much money he really has or and they actually, you know, many things about his, you know, his colleagues and associates have been printed. There has been information about money stolen. There's a big piece actually in the last few days reported by several newspapers about much the extent of Russian money laundering in Europe and how much, you know, billions of dollars stolen from the Russian budget and so on. So what Putin wants is for all those stories to be undermined. You know, so if you if you tell lots and lots of lies, then people don't really know what to believe and they don't and I don't want to make a direct analogy to what Trump is doing, but Trump clearly is trying to undermine the, you know, the so-called mainstream media or even, you know, just the media. He wants people to doubt what they read. He wants his followers not to believe, I don't know, the New York Times or 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 the Washington Post. And so, you know, by by lying, he obfuscates the whole space in a way. You know, the whole media space and the media conversation is thrown into chaos. I mean, I think it's really interesting how 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 difficult it is for sort of mainstream reporters, I mean, really, with whether they have kind of center-right or center-left views, even to describe what he's doing. I mean, for example, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as he made that wiretapping claim, Obama denied it almost immediately. It was pretty clear to me right away that it wasn't true, you know, that he'd made it up, and as you say, to distract from something else. But it's very difficult for, you know, in our in our media environment, it was very hard for people to cope with that. And you know, people kept reporting on it and they kept asking him questions about it. And it was very difficult for us to come to terms with it. And I think what it helped to do was undermine the whole idea that the press can report on things that are true and and find truth and falsehood and that there's anything that can be true or false at all. You know, he he prefers to exist in a kind of fantasy world where he can make up reality. So he can say, um, I don't know, you know, I won the popular vote in the election where there were millions of people at my inauguration. And he wants people to believe that because he wants to create reality and not be, you know, be beholden to reality. And lying is one of the ways in which political leaders do that. They do it in Russia. They do it in Venezuela. They do it in um, they do it in Turkey. I mean, it's, it can be done. Um, you know, you can you can it turns out that you don't need a even a police state to do that. You can sort of pollute the information space just by lying. Hmm. Um, and I think he has done that. And what's you know, the interesting thing will be to watch what happens um, both to the American press and to the American political debate over the next several years. Um, and, I, and I actually don't I don't have a prediction exactly as that I, as I, said, I can tell you what happened in you know, in totalitarian countries where people were forced to believe in lies or were forbidden from contradicting them. But how it will work in 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 um, in the United States, I don't know yet. Um, you know, in other countries, you get a phenomenon where people separate public life from private life. In other words, there's one set of values that apply in the public sphere. You know, in the public sphere, you lie. And then mm. in the private sphere, you behave differently around your family and your children and so on. And maybe something like that will happen in America, where people begin to say, right, the public sphere is different. And, you know, we behave differently there and we, do, and we behave differently at home. Maybe you will begin to get um, people cutting themselves off from public life. And I've seen this a little bit among people I know. You know, it's all so awful. I can't bear to read about it anymore. Yeah. Get me away from it. And and that's um, that's another reaction that you get in, you know, again, in Venezuela and in Russia, you know, okay, I'm just going to, I'm not going to pay any attention to the political sphere because it's so confusing and awful. I want to flag that point because the truth is I feel that myself and I notice that among people and I I just see that happening around me, but I I feel it 
really acutely myself, and I'm someone who has made a lot of noise about Trump and dealt with the pushback that one gets there. And there's a kind of reality testing fatigue that sets in. And I, and it's just, it's so onerous to have to respond to this stuff. And he lies with such velocity and so grotesquely, and as do his defenders, the Sean Spicers of the world and Kellyanne Conway. And it's just, it's unbelievable what comes out of their mouths. And I've said this before, I'm sure I'm not the only person who has said this, but if Trump were one-tenth as bad, he would seem worse. Like, you can't even keep up with the crazy thing he said a few hours ago because he's, he's saying another crazy thing right now. And you see the media just can't even focus on his various crimes and, and misdemeanors against basic human sanity, to say nothing of, of civility, because they come at it just so rapidly and they're so enormous. But this, this is we know this in other countries. It's not yeah. unique to the United States. I mean, it's it's a it's a, and as I said, people learn, people develop coping mechanisms. They cut themselves off, or they create, you know, they make a distinction between public and private morality, or they, you know, or in some cases they they realize that to get ahead in their job or in their community, they need to pretend to believe it, and so they mm. do. I mean, that's another phenomenon. It's worth paying attention to is that. You know, and I think that a lot of the Republicans who defend him or who aren't anyway don't criticize him are doing it for this reason. You know, so he's set the tone of public life. And in order to succeed in his world, whether it's in his cabinet or in his White House or in his or in the Congress that he's president of, um, people will need to pretend what he's saying is true. And that will create another weird level of alternate reality. Yeah. Where, you know, as or you, as you say, true, where people yeah. can't contradict him because in order to sort of you know, in in the way that, you know, the Communist Party used to say, um, you know, we've had this tremendous economic success. And people would say, yes, we've had tremendous economic success. It wasn't because they believed it. It's just that that was what it was necessary to say in order to get ahead. And we will now see that phenomenon in American life as well. Yes. Let's step back for a second. And because I, I don't want to ignore this, this challenge I put to us at the beginning. What is the smartest defense of Trump you've heard? And, and so, so what could someone say I don't know who this person would be. If you have a smart defender of Trump in mind, please name this person because I would love to know such a person exists. But what could someone say to argue that none of what we just said matters at all? So I do know some people who've defended Trump, and I won't mention their names because they might not like it. Mm -hmm. But um, the, the main defense that I have heard from intelligent Republicans who you know care about their country just as much as you and I do, is that there are things that we need to get done um, that the Republican Congress, you know, which is now united and is dominated by the Republicans, and we were about to have a Republican dominator anyway, a four to five. If I mean, it never quite works out like that, but a Supreme Court that will have a conservative majority or might have a conservative majority because you never know how people really vote. But mm. um, you know, there are now important changes that we can make and we just need to somehow live with Trump and his madness um, and, and get around him. And the Republican Congress is going to do so many great and important things that we can ignore this. That, that is, and I'm not defending that defense. I'm mm. just saying I've heard it. How deep does that go? Does it go so far as to say that not only is Trump the lesser evil here, it's not that it's just not that Clinton was going to be so terrible and and make our you know our being the rights 
policy concerns unattainable, but that there's something actually more optimal about Trump than that, that what the system needs is this level of chaos or something like it. We need a wrecking ball. Well, there's there's the Steve Bannon anarchy argument or Mm -hmm. the Peter Thiel anarchy argument, you know, that we need total chaos and revolution and we need to burn everything down. And then in the ashes of our country, we will rebuild something better. I mean, that, but that's, by the way, a Bolshevik argument. That was the, you know, that was the motivating idea of the Russian revolution, which ended in total disaster. I mean, there's no... There's no evidence that revolutionary destruction um, creates anything good ever. I mean, there's no historical example you can point to. But but there are people who believe that. I mean, there are people who believe that. Stated that way, it sounds quite crazy to me. Do you think Bannon and Thiel and and people who subscribe to the wrecking ball theory are imagining that level of real-world chaos, or are they just imagining that it can be contained to the bureaucracy of government and that it will kind of clean out that mess of bad incentives and and career bureaucrats who staff the administrative state, but that nothing that we really care about will be destroyed. So I I only know, you know, I'm now repeating what people have said about Bannon or heard him say mm-hmm. or, you know, interpreted that, you know, but, but I'm told that he does believe in a in, in something quite a lot more than that. For example, he would like to have a war with China, you know, because he feels that, the you know, we need to bring this crisis to, you know, this competition between our two countries to, you know, to a, to a head and we need to resolve it. And so we need, you know, we need a war. Um, and just, you know, desiring a war like that, that's another, that's also very Bolshevik. Mm. Um, I can't, you know, I don't know whether that's true or not, but if it is, then it is a case that they do believe in something quite a bit more than just less bureaucracy. Give me the view from across the pond. How, what is Trump doing to our standing in the world? How did the various European countries view us at the moment? This is, of course, my main concern. I mean, uh, so I live in London most of the time. I live in Warsaw part of the time. Um, I have a kind of foot in different parts of the transatlantic alliance. Um, I'm married to a Pole, you know, who was a, who was in a previous Polish government and who's, you know, was, I, I watched, you know, Central Europe join NATO, um, which was very moving at the time. Hmm. Um, and, and I watched the creation of the expanded transatlantic alliance as it is and the sort of spread of democracy and prosperity across Europe. And, uh, you know, the, I mean, first of all, it was clear to me during the campaign that Trump, even by his rhetoric and his behavior, was doing enormous damage to America's reputation. But of course, since he's been in office, it's become much worse. You know, he he he. You know, the same things that we see at home, of course, are seen abroad. I mean, there's no difference anymore. And but you know, he the same tweets that he's tweeting in the United States are read all over the world. I mean, I was told there was a department now in the South Korean government that's now devoted to reading Trump's tweets because they need to be you know mm. up on them in case I don't know in case he accidentally insults South Korea, they might need to know about it. Mm. Sign of the times. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, he he. I mean, first, first of all, the lying, which is perceived as lying abroad, just as is at home. But second of all, the open and obvious disregard for America's allies and alliances um, and traditional friendships, which are not minor and unimportant things and which are not, um, you know, and which, which have been extremely valuable and important to the United States. I mean, one of the bizarre things about Trump, who styles himself as a deal maker, is that he doesn't seem to understand even 
you know, what our alliances are and what they give to us. I mean, why does the United States have an outsized footprint all around the world? Why does the world speak English? Why, you know, why is the world open to American companies? And one of the reasons is, and, and, and also why are we, why was our strength generally accepted and not fought back against in Europe and other places? And part of it is that we are an, an unusual superpower and that we have created this structure of friends and alliances and like-minded countries um, who want to cooperate with us in creating international trade agreements and international financial arrangements um, and ensuring that, um, you know, the business, is, the business is possible for our companies and, you know, the world is open to our diplomats and our tourists and our travelers. I mean, there are all kinds of benefits that we have as a nation, both economic and psychological and political, Mm. um, from this enormous web of alliances uh, with other democracies. And Trump, by denigrating it, I mean, constantly, actually, all the way through the campaign and right up until really a few days ago, when he once again attacked Germany and Sweden in a a strange speech that he gave, um, you know, at a rally in Florida, he has continually attacked them, you know, over and over again, um, you know, while appearing to praise dictatorships and particularly mm. Russia. Um, and that has alarmed people because, you know, what does it mean? Is America not interested in democracy anymore? Are we not going to defend our friends anymore? Are we not interested in 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 the, the world that we created? I mean, the, the, the globalized world, you know, we call it globalization. Actually, you know, in a lot of ways, it's been Americanization. I mean, it's been people accepting our norms and our ways of behavior and our, you know, our understanding about economics. You know, mm-hmm. the, 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 you know, free trade is an American, really it's an Anglo-American idea. The British championed it in the 19th century, but we championed it now. This is our, the world that we wanted um, and that we've stood behind and we're the, you know, we wrote the rules. Mm-hmm. So are we now going to unwrite all that? Are we going to destroy it? Are we going to, you know, go backwards? And it's been, it's very confusing for our allies. And for people who don't like the United States, it's been, I mean, it's a combination of them feeling quite nervous about it, about us and not being sure what we'll do anymore. But it's also, you know, a green light. Okay, America doesn't care anymore about democracy. You know, that makes it easier for us to beat up on our dissidents. So I think there's been a, you know, I think that his, his, the two months of his presidency have had a profound negative and, you know, maybe irreversible effect on America's impact in the world and America's presence in the world. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, this is something I did try to talk about before the election, you know, quite a lot. And I don't know that, you know, and one of the things I w- I'm worried about is that I don't know that Americans understand this anymore. Um, I don't know how, how, yeah. how, um, if Americans are aware of the degree to which this is their world, you know, that they created um, with their rules, and that we had been the main beneficiaries of it. Yeah. So, I, could you uh, just reflect on the on the the concept of soft power? It seems like that's what you've been describing, but I, it's not a concept that most people, I think, are familiar with. So, soft power is the is the power that we exert through um, through being, for example, the world leader in education. You mm-hmm. know that that people want to come and study in our country. They admire American degrees. Um, it's the power we exert through the power of American culture. You know, people want to watch American movies. Um, it's power through diplomacy. It's power through media. It's power through that we set by example. I mean, for example, you know, it's it's a it's a side issue, but but an important one. The fact that Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, has stated that he doesn't want to bring reporters with him anymore when he travels. Well, you know, one of the things that 
when the Secretary of State brings reporters to, for example, China and has an open dialogue with them, one of the things that does is it shows, look, this is the American system. Our officials are transparent. They speak to reporters. Mm. And that sets a kind of example for China. It's a, it's a kind of challenge. It shows, you know, this is how we do things and we think it's better. And by refusing to do that, he, he loses something. So he loses a measure of influence. Oh, I see. He's a, he's a secretive leader just like one of ours. You know, he becomes less, you know, less interesting to, to people who, wanna, who want China to evolve. So, um, you know, the soft powers, the things that we do that, that aren't military, that nevertheless um, create American influence. And this is one of the things that Americans have excelled at and that we've been particularly good at over the last several decades is um, exporting our model, you know, things that values that we believe in um, all over the world, not through military force, but through, as I say, the power of example, through media, through education and other things. And that even leaves aside economic power, which is another source of power. Yeah. The idea that military power is our only, is the only thing we have is absurd. I mean, of course it helps and it's very important, um, particularly in you know, particular circumstances, but, but American power and strength comes from people admiring us and wanting to be like us um, mm. as much as it comes from anything else. I want to get into Russia and that kind of tightly wound knot in a moment, but just to stay on this point of foreign perception of our travails at the moment, how does our response to Trump, such as it is, appear to our allies abroad? I mean, how does it look like this investigation into Russia ties that's to whatever degree being midwifed by the Republicans in Congress? How does our response look to the rest of the world? Our system is not collapsing, obviously, but you know, the fact that we w were successfully promoted someone like Trump and are now so tongue-tied in addressing, you know, what to me is his obvious unfitness for the role of the presidency. It looks like American democracy is precarious in a way that I, I don't think anyone previously could have imagined. Yes, I've had a lot of sort of hysterical Germans wanting to know, you know, is this the Fourth Reich? You know, is the is 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 totalitarianism rising in America? And I think actually I've mostly suggested that that's not the case. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, a lot depends. I think it's a little early, actually, because a lot depends on how our democracy does react to him. You know, how how do we deal with him? You know, what does happen in these hearings? You know, are we, you know, is our system able to cope with a liar? You know, is it able to cope with um, somebody with these authoritarian tendencies? You know, um, and if it, if it, if it turns out that it can, um, which I, I think it's too early to say that it can't, I, I think, I think it may very well might be able to, mm. then I think American democracy will look stronger to people. American democracy will yeah. look stronger to people. Um, so I think, um, you know, certainly it's true that the outside world is gripped by the Russian story, um, partly because particularly in Europe, I can say, you know, there's really no country in Europe that doesn't have a similar story. I mean, there is, you know, enormous amount of you know, attempted Russian influence in really every country in Europe. And in some cases, I've it's already shaped elections and it's already shaped political narratives and, and people are very aware of the problem. So watching how that comes out. I think will have an enormous impact on other countries, particularly European countries. Hmm. Well, that's a, a great background point to make, because obviously Trump's defenders will say that the Russian story is just a conspiracy theory, right? As, as though Russia 
there's no evidence that Russia ever does anything like this. No, no, no. no. I mean, so the Russian story is, I, so I saw it last summer when it started. I knew exactly what it was. Um, as soon as the first WikiLeaks, just before the Democratic convention, as soon as that, as soon as they leaked anything, by the way, I knew that WikiLeaks has leaked um, Russian things before and has been involved in spreading Russian disinformation before because they spread it about me. So I have a, you know, very personal awareness of it. Mm. I mean, Julian Assange's Twitter feed, actually. But, you know, I saw it last summer and I thought, oh, God, I know what's happening. I know exactly what this is because I've seen it in Ukraine. I've seen it in Poland. I've seen it in Slovakia. You know, I've seen them trying to do this in in France and Germany. I know exactly. I mean, it was a it's a it's a pattern that they of politics that they follow really in every European country in which they seek out extreme groups and movements which they support sometimes quite openly. They support Marine Le Pen, who's the far right candidate in France. They um, they they support the far right party in Hungary. And sometimes it's sometimes it's with money. Sometimes it's just with you know contacts and associations. Sometimes it's with social media campaigns. Um, sometimes they put their money behind business interests in in particular countries, hoping that those will um, that those will either prove to be disruptive or will help them in some ways. But they're very interested in shaping the political debate all over Europe. Um, and so when they began to do it in the United States, what surprised me was that it was working, you know, because as I said, I've, you know, okay, it's one thing for the Russians to have an enormous impact in Slovakia, which is a tiny country with very weak media. Um, it's another thing for it to work in the United States, which just floored me. You know, mm. I, when I saw the pattern, I, you know, I knew exactly how it was was working. Uh, I just didn't think it could succeed in the U.S. because I thought the U.S. was too big, you know, and, it, and our media is too complicated. You know, how could how could Russian memes, you know, and Russian slogans and Russian narratives come to dominate the election? And then actually when Trump himself began using them, I realized that we were in a whole different ballpark. And I actually, to this day, I still don't know whether he used them knowing they came from Sputnik and from Russian media sites or whether he thought they came from somewhere else. But he certainly, for example, in the latter part of his campaign, stuff like you know, Obama created ISIS. That was a that was a that was a story that originated, you know, in in Russian media. Hillary Clinton will cause World War Three. That was yeah. a story that originated. That was a theme that originated in Russian media. When he began doing that, I thought, you know, surely this won't work. But of course, it did. But as I say, the main point is that this is a, you know, there's a set of tactics they've used. There's a pattern to it. You know, it works the same in every country. Some they, you know, they adjust it depending on the politics. You know, sometimes they support the far left, sometimes they support the far right, sometimes they support business people. But you know, in every country, they do the same thing, and that they did in the United States is not surprising. Again, just surprising that it worked. Yeah, it, it was fascinating to see these memes spread. I didn't know necessarily they were coming from Russian sources at the time, but when I was criticizing Trump during the campaign. You know, I had this kind of unique view of this because you know, having a, a reasonably sized audience and discovering that some significant percentage—I I don't really know what—but you know, I always thought it was something like twenty percent were Trump supporters. It would be like stepping into an echo chamber and see these memes come at me, like the one you know that Clinton's going to start World War III, and it just had the character of a almost like a moral panic or just very much what it is. It's kind of like a viral contagion of ideas that are, that are who knows what their provenance is, but they're just spread without any friction in the system, you know, however thoughtlessly, but they do their work. You know, just people don't really see beyond the meme. Of course, she's going to start, she wants war with the Russians. You want a nuclear war, vote for Clinton. 
it was amazing to see. Yeah, but it was that was done deliberately. I mean, yeah. there, there was the, they created the themes, and then there was this enormous network of um, trolls and bots who repeated them in different ways over and over and over again, so that they would appear on people's Facebook pages and on their or Facebook feeds and and news feeds, and and they and they repeated them on you know dozens and dozens of conspiracy websites, and it was a it was you know it was not an accident that you started seeing them all over the place. It was a it was a deliberate tactic. Mm. As I said, I was just surprised that, it, and I've seen that before too. You know, I just was surprised that it worked. Is there anything to say to the Trump defender at this point who will hear this as just more fake news or just, it's a, its own conspiracy theory? Now you have a conspiracy theory about Russian conspiracy to subvert democracy. I mean, you know, I would I would suggest that people look at what's happened in other countries and look at how this, I mean, there has been stuff, I can, I can recommend things that have been written about it, you know, look at how it has worked in the past and compare the experience in the United States to other places. And then you can see that it's a pattern and it's not, you know, some, you know, it's not something that um, Bernie Sanders made up or, or Elizabeth mm -hmm. Warren. It's not crazy. It's got, it's got, you know, I suppose for Americans, it's new. You know, people haven't seen this or thought about it before. I mean, it's not new for Europeans. Right. But if you look at, you know, if you want foundation for it, you know, start reading about Russian disinformation tactics, Russian media, um, and then you can, you know, get and you and and it's not just the Washington Post and the New York Times that have written about it. I mean, you can find think tanks have written about it and scholars and you know, you know, look it up. You know, go do some background reading. Um, and you'll discover that this is a, these are known tactics. They've been tried before and they've worked in other places. If you think it, you know, mm. you know, look for the context, try and try and find the examples of it elsewhere. What do you say to arguments of moral equivalence? I mean, Trump made one himself when Putin's violence was pointed out to him. He said, well, we've done violent things too. Yeah, except, well. It's amazing yeah, that we, wasn't we, a we scandal. We don't kill our own journalists, but yes. Right, right. right. I, I want to get into to who Putin is in a moment, but what do you say to those who say that we really have no moral standing to judge Russia for meddling in our election, say, because or, or even invading other countries because we've done that sort of thing in the past? I mean, if you think we have no moral standing, I mean, first of all, that's an argument that the far left made for many years. So we know that, you know, we know this argument. Um, it's amazing to hear people on the right making it. But, you know, if you think that we have no moral standing, then you you are saying, in effect, that you don't believe in our democracy and you don't believe that there's anything, you know, good about our system. And you don't believe that um, there's anything valuable about the American or really even the Western political system. And then you need to ask yourself, well, then, you know, why are you bothering to be interested in politics at all? I mean, why are you, do you, you know, what is politics for you? Is it just cynical? Is it about, you know, as Trump would have it, is it about people doing deals and getting money for themselves? Or, you know, I mean, if politics isn't a moral space, mm -hmm. then what is it? You know, then it's, yeah. you know, it's another set of business deals. I mean, and then we are in different territory. Then we're not the United States anymore, at least as not as we've been for the last couple of hundred years. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, I think this is actually quite profound. You know, you have mm. to, if you participate in the American political debate without some conviction that our democracy matters, um, then you are well outside of, um, of any American political tradition going back to, you know, the 18th century. And then we're talking, then you're living in, you're making an argument for um, a completely different kind of politics. So, I, you know, and I, I don't, um, 
you know, I don't know why you're bothering. Mm. I mean, in a way, I don't know why Trump bothers. You know, if 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 we're just the same as anywhere else and we're just as bad as everywhere else, and if it's all about doing deals and enriching yourselves, you know, what's the point? I mean, I, then I have to assume why is he in politics? It must be for to make money. I mean, why else would he be doing it? Yeah, well, that's a suspicion, obviously, that many people have had, and it's one that I share. I, I view him as someone who, to a an unusual degree, and when I said he was atypical before, I meant atypical of the U.S., and not that we couldn't compare him to someone like Chavez, but I, I just see that to a degree that I have never suspected was likely to prevail in our politics, he is nakedly and pathologically selfish. This is someone who really is, I think you could walk a thousand miles in any direction from where you are and not encounter someone who is this devoid of an ethical connection to other human beings and who is so concerned about being famous and rich and powerful and is so morally shallow. And his, his level of dishonesty is the primary signature for that, but just, you know, everything about his life prior to politics. I mean, his, you know, the way he would lie about the numbers of floors in his buildings and his just rapacious desire for fame of any sort. He's turned the world into an episode of The Apprentice, and this is success for him. And it's, if it was possible to take any of this personally, it is a, a national disgrace. I mean, it's, it's a humiliation for an entire country and political system, that this is what has been achieved by this man who is so, I mean, he's mediocre even as a real estate developer. He's not even among the great (laughs) real estate developers of New York. If you had listed the great real estate developers in Manhattan and asked them to list their equals, he wouldn't have been on that list. I mean, he was a joke even among developers. It's astonishing. I mean, we're in some kind of Alternate universe well, now the where question this works. Is, do, can we can we bring ethics back into American public life and defeat him? I mean, that's you know yeah. that's the question we have now. So, and maybe we can, and maybe we can't. We'll see. Let's bear down on the on the question at hand here, which is the connection between Trump and Russia. What do you make of the fact that he has had only nice things to say about Putin? And what do you make of the fact that he's appointed all these people? who have, such, have had such an unusual degree of communication and connection with and to Russia. And I guess, again, keeping an eye on appeasing those who will just be totally unsympathetic with the line we've taken here, what is the most benign interpretation of all of that that's still plausible? And, and I guess I, I'd also want to hear that, but what, what's the most nefarious? I mean, give me the two extremes where the range of interpretation between you know, being sanguine and charitable on the one hand and being fairly worried and suspicious on the other that you think that sane, you know, non-hysterical people and non-blind people can still occupy. So since I, I've actually, since I've been writing about this in, since last summer, I've really always had the same interpretation. And my interpretation is that you don't need to believe in a conspiracy. You know, there is no... You know, there was no secret meeting, you know, between Trump and Putin, you know, in a dark cupboard somewhere in the, I don't know, in the back of the Hermitage, you know. You didn't need to believe in secret connections. There could have been some collusion, direct conclusion. I mean, clearly there was some, actually, between his campaign and the Russians. But you didn't need to believe in an elaborate plot. I mean, almost everything that we know about Trump and Putin or Trump and Russia is on the record and is 
obvious. In other words, you know, his long interest in Russia, he's been traveling there since the 80s. Um, his, you know, his interest in doing business there, um, the massive Russian investment in his properties in the United States. I mean, you know, here, I suppose that's a, that's something we don't know exactly. We don't know because one of the theories about his companies is that they were rescued by Russian money. And this mm. is his reason for, you know, liking Russia or feeling somehow beholden to Russia is because um, his failing real estate, as he would put it, failing real estate developments were bailed out by this massive influx of laundered Russian money into the real estate market in the in the, in the 1990s and 2000s. And that's something that we have his son, I think in 2008, claiming was true. But he, Trump, has recently said that he has no investments, no loans, no nothing with Russia. Well, he's actually been very careful. He said he has no investments and no loans, but he hasn't denied that he has Russian investment in him, mm. in other words, in his properties. Um, and actually, there was a Reuters, there's been a, quite a big Reuters piece today or yesterday um, unfortunately, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but showing, um, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions, invested in his real estate companies from, you know, people holding Russian passports in the last decade. So, you know, it's certainly very substantial. We just don't know exactly how substantial, but that's also always been clear. I mean, that's kind of, we've sort of known that all along, too. You know, it's also clear that he hired people who had direct experience of Russian politics. I mean, I'm sorry, Paul Manafort was known for one thing. You know, he was known for having created and backed and um, imagined the campaign of Viktor Yanukovych, who was the sort of pro-Russian president of Ukraine, who led to this, created this liberal democracy in Ukraine and began cracking down on opposition parties and destroying the media and who was eventually overthrown in a revolution in 2014. And that was Paul Manafort's most important and most famous client. So, um, and that person was a, you know, a Russian puppet. So Paul Manafort has a history of working for Russia. And so that he would be then directly employed. I mean, as soon as that happened, actually, as soon as he was employed by the Trump campaign, I, you know, alarm bells went off. Just to remind people, he was running the Trump campaign for, I think he ran it for at least five months, right? He ran it for at least five months, um, and he seems to have longer, apparently used to live, I don't know if he still does, but at one point he lived in Trump Tower, so he has longer connections to Trump. But he, you know, he, he, he ran, you know, he ran, and he was running the Trump campaign the same way he ran Yanukovych's campaign. You know, those rallies with kind of violence and so on. I mean, those, those were Yanukovych tactics, as I said at the beginning. Mm -hmm. This is how I recognize them. Didn't Sean Spicer, I think yesterday in a press conference, when Manafort's name came up, he, he said something like he had a peripheral connection to the campaign as though he barely was a part of it when he was actually running it? It's absurd. I mean, he ran the campaign and he, and the, as I said, the, I, I recognized his tactics. I mean, it, there was sort of Paul Manafort's Yanukovych-style tactics being used in the U.S. election. That was, you know, that was one of the first clues. But I think the deeper, um, you know, the deeper, and in, in some ways, I mean, I know nobody, you know, people want a conspiracy and they want secret, you know, secret agreements and so on. But the deeper and the really disturbing thing about Trump and Putin is the degree to which Trump appears to admire Putin mm. for what he is. And I think it's this, you know, Putin is, what has Putin done? You know, what is he known for? And what he's known for is his combination, ability to combine business and politics. In other words, you know, he used stolen money, essentially, or, you know, laundered money to get into politics. And then once he was in politics, he used his political position to make more money. I mean, how did Putin become one of the world's richest men? You know, it was through using his connections inside the Russian state. 
You know, how does he run Russia? He runs it through, you know, li- you know, financial links through an, an oligarchic system. Mm. Um, and he sort of combines the money. And he also uses violence as well. And he murders journalists and so on, but and murders his political opponents. But um, but it's this it's this personal enrichment. You know, the, you know, Putin lives in palaces and he has yachts and his, you know, he owns a huge apartment in Paris. That's, you know, the French police know that, you know, so he he owns things all over the world. And this you know, this, it seems to me, must be what Trump admires. I mean, he is the kind of politician we have never had before in the United States. And we've never had a president in any case, you know, who used the office to enrich himself. Um, and it's become clear that, you know, Trump sees himself as a something like, you know, what Putin did. And what Putin did is something he admires and he wants to be like that. And to me, that's the most disturbing thing about him of all. As I said, it's, yeah. a, it's a vision of politics, totally amoral politics. I mean, beyond just being unconstitutional, I mean, it's amoral and that it's um, the point of it is to enrich yourself and the people around you and then to throw some slogans at ordinary people so that they're fooled by it and they don't see it or they don't care about it. Just to say nothing of the fact that we now have a president who has only said nice things about a world leader who poisons his critics with polonium. Yes. And that now, I think the last poll I saw, 37% 37% of Republicans have a positive view of Putin. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the piece of it that I didn't expect. Um, you know, I didn't expect um, Americans to go along with this view or to, or to be sympathetic to it. Um, you know, and, th- and this, is, this is maybe the most disturbing thing about it. But Trump's, you know, the, the link to Russia, I mean, the most profound link to Russia is this link of, you know, him admiring that system and wanting to import it to the United States because it would be good for him. And also another important point about Putin, and this is a this actually has a long tradition in Russia, is that Putin did a similar thing to Trump. And this is again, this is an, an, as did, by the way, Yanukovych and, and, and therefore Manafort, which was to successfully divide his own country. In other words, this thing of, you know, the, the alienated liberal elite versus mm. the people. You know, that the real people don't care about democracy and the real people don't care if I enrich myself as long as Russia is great again. You know, this tactic of dividing your country, in effect, creating tribalism inside your own country um, where it doesn't exist before. This is a political technique and others have done it, too. I mean, it's been done in Poland recently. It's been done in other places. Mm. But the importation of that, that that would work in the United States where, you know, historically, our presidents, even though we've had very bitter election campaigns, usually the first thing that they do after winning is they say, right, now I would like to make a unifying speech in which I encourage all of my opponents to support me. And I reach out to my opponents across the aisle and try and do deals with them. I mean, that's how we've, that's how every president, at least in my memory, um, has behaved in the months after the election campaign. And Trump did exactly the opposite. Hmm. You know, he gave a, a bitter and divisive um, inaugural speech. Um, you know, since being elected, he's gone on saying basically, you know, the people who voted me are my people and the rest of you are losers and I don't care about you. And we haven't had that in American politics before. And that's very Russian. You know, it's very, um, you know, it's a it's a it's an authoritarian way of ruling. You know, you divide into my people and the other. And also, I should say, very chavista. I mean, it's a it was, it was a tactic in Venezuela as well and other places. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I think that the deep the deep link between Trump and Putin is this is actually, I mean, ideological, for lack of a better term, mm. you know, that he wants he admires that kind of leadership and he wants to bring it. You know, and the other things are, you know, 
are sort of accoutrements. I mean, the, the you know that he he feels comfortable with the kinds of people around Putin. He has comfortable he's comfortable with Russian friends and investors. Um, as is his daughter. I mean, Ivanka has also has Russian contacts and friends whom she's been in touch with, uh, Abramovich's wife and others. They're comfortable using Russian advisors like Manafort. You know, they're comfortable in that world because that's you know that's what they aspire to, uh, and that that to me is. You know, in a way, that's the benign view because that doesn't you don't need a conspiracy or a secret agreement in order to believe that because you can see it. You know, you just look at what they've done. On the other hand, it's, I suppose, a very negative view because it implies something really quite profound about them. Mm. I mean, about the Trump family, you know, that this this is what they want. They want that kind of power. They want joint, you know, political economic power and they want to use, you know, their political influence to make money for themselves or maybe for their friends and relatives. Mm. So you've just made what strikes me as a very important point, and it's actually a point that I know David Frum agrees with. When asked a similar question, he said something like, with Trump, there are many secrets, but there are no mysteries, right? I mean, there's a lot we don't know specifically. We don't have his tax returns, but you don't have to worry necessarily that there's a layer of collusion as yet undetected to understand what is wrong with his presidency, and in particular, what is wrong with his fondness for Putin. Yeah. I mean, and I would say about the, about the collusion thing, I mean, to me, it's absolutely clear that the Russians backed his campaign. I mean, I could see it happening at the time. And as I said, I could recognize it because it's what they've done in other campaigns. There is a question as to whether the Trump campaign knew that and was actively cooperating or not. Mm. Uh, you know, and I suppose that's a that's a missing piece, and maybe the FBI can find that out, and maybe they can't. But but is that is that the only actionable piece? I mean, does it does it worry you that we in this process of this investigation are now narrowly focused on finding the smoking gun of collusion, and absent that, everything else is permissible, everything else is acceptable. Um, yes, it does bother me. I mean, I understand that that's the nature of FBI investigations. You know, they're looking for a crime. Um, but I think as the, you know, as as the American public, we should be looking more broadly. You know, why was the Russian president backing him? You know, why and why were those slogans successful? You know, why was this authoritarian language and this way, this divisive way of running a political campaign? Why was that successful? Mm. Um, and I think that's what we should be focused on. I mean, I mean, I have no, I have, look, I have no doubt that Russia backed him. And so the question is why and what does it mean? Um, and I would hope we could begin to talk about that. I mean, I, I'm not sure that that's the FBI's job. What would it take for Congress to turn against him? I mean, can you imagine a sequence of events that didn't entail a crime of the sort that the most paranoid among us may imagine happened that would still lead to his impeachment? My guess is, and this is, you know, this is unfortunately cynical, is that what would have to happen is that he became so unpopular that um, Republicans in Congress began to fear it would affect their chances of reelection, which is not impossible. But I, I, I would imagine that's the, that will be the moment when, he, when his presidency is really in danger. So is there anything relevant to say about Russian history here? How do the Russians view the U.S. at the moment? I mean, how, what, what is Russian popular sentiment with respect to the U.S.? And how do you think the Russians and their government view our response to their meddling in our electoral process? Well, first of all, I mean, one of the other oddities of all this, 
first of all, the, the Putin has been running for the last several years the most extraordinary anti-American publicity campaign. I mean, using language far exceeding anything that we saw in the latter part of the Cold War, you know, p- pounding the United States sort of day in and day out on the media, you know, the, and, and all the media one way there or the other is state controlled. Um, all the you know, with a few exceptions, mm. um, over and over again about American, you know, evil and American iniquity and terrible things the America has done in different parts of the world and terrible things about the American economy. And you can see a kind of echo of it on RT on the on the Russian television that you can get in the United States. But actually, what you can see in Russia in Russian is much worse. Um, right up to kind of threatening language about atomic warfare and pictures of bombs exploding and so on. So, you know, the, the, I mean, I, I have to assume that Trump doesn't know that or that the people around him don't know that, but the, the, the campaign against the United States, and this is, has been, of course, um, part of the, how Putin has stayed in power is by impressing people of the, the nature of the Western threat, which is now um, supposedly mounting against him and the and the terrible things that NATO is plotting against them. So he has created this idea of threat and terror coming from the West um, that that has been, you know, promulgated in Russia for the last several years. And so, you know, expecting Russians to, you know, even even when Trump was elected, people were, of course, there was a lot of much more positive news about Trump. But even after that, people were still very wary. Um, you know, this is probably the most anti-American mood that Russia has been in since, you know, for several decades right now. Mm. So so expecting them to see anything. I mean, of course, you know, there's an important percentage of the Russian population doesn't believe their media. So with the exception of them, and we don't really know what that proportion is. But yeah, many, many Russians see, you know, would just assume that anything coming out of the United States is a lie or is a conspiracy theory. You know, they would assume that our congressional investigation is rubbish, because that's what they're told literally every night on television. And with, as again, with with very few exceptions. Again, the perception of Trump has been much more positive than of any previous president, partly because he was portrayed as being pro-Russian in, mm-hmm. on Russian television. So there was some enthusiasm when he was elected, but cynicism has mostly set in again. But, you know, every night Russians watch, you know, every, you know negative stories about the United States, terrible images and so on expecting them to think anything positive, even about our investigative processes, I think probably um, hoping for too much. What do you think about this dossier that was prepared on him by the British spies? Is there anything of interest there or is that just political pornography? No, look, I mean, it was it was classic rural intelligence. You know, the guy who wrote it was picking up gossip in Moscow and talking to people who knew some stuff. Um, and it's, you know, and it should have been treated as such, but that's why it was, should never have been published. Clearly, there were pieces of it that ring true, and there were elements of it that, you know, have already been proven, like, for example, that the Russians were backing the Trump campaign and were hoping that Trump would win. I mean, that sort of, that seems to me fairly obvious that it was correct. You know, the, 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 the allegation about compromise, you know, that Trump was somehow compromised in, in, uh, when, when he was visiting Russia, I mean, I sort of don't, I mean, maybe something like that happened. I don't really care because as I said, as far as I'm concerned, his, you know, what you know, what you know about his open relationship with Russia and what we can see on the surface is much more damaging than that. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I can find, I can think of plenty of explanations why he would be pro-Russian other than that. So I don't really need that as a, as an explanation. Right. But 
you know, some of it. And I actually think that I think it was Senator McCain who sent it to the FBI. I mean, I think that was it was certainly, you know, I'm, I, it was certainly worth investigating. And it was important as as gossip to check it out and try and understand it. I mean, but it, once again, I don't think we need these secret documents um, in order to understand what's going on. Yeah, well, that, again, that strikes me as a very important point, and it's it's one that makes a narrowly focused investigation on the worst possible disclosures, I think, a real liability. I mean, we I think we have to grapple with the fact that we have someone in power who really doesn't have a civil society democratic bone in his body, and you know, his admiration for Putin is is a symptom of his character and temperament. I agree with you. And I think that's more important than, you know, and you're right, of course, the danger is that the FBI investigation won't find the smoking gun, you know, and so therefore people will say, oh, well, it's all right then. Yeah. Whereas actually the problem is deeper and more important and we don't need a smoking gun because we can see it. We see what's, it's all pretty open. Okay. So Anna, final question about what happens in this era of fake news. How do, how do we deal with the fake news problem, both the real fake news and the fake fake news? I mean, that, that is the, the allegation that the real news of the sort that you report and your colleagues report is fake and just made by propagandists. How do we get to a future in some near term where this is not as corrosive a problem as, as it's been? Well, funnily enough, I mean, I actually started thinking about this problem a couple of years ago, exactly in the context of Russian propaganda. And I started thinking about it in the con- in, in Eastern Europe and, you know, what could be done there, where I saw this same problem originally. Um, and by the way, I, I really do think that the Russians were pioneers. You know, they understood before other people did that social media could be manipulated and, mm. and that and that it could be used to pass off fake stories um, efficiently. And they just, you know, now now lots of people understand it and lots of people do it, but they just saw it first um, and they were using it first before others did. Um, and that's why I started working on it um, a couple of years ago. I mean, my, my answer is that there are going to be, there isn't going to be a, a silver bullet. There are going to be a number of answers um, and it will require a lot of different institutions to get interested in solving them. A lot of the tech companies want some kind of simple answer, like they can do automated fact checking, or there will be some app you can have on your phone, you know, that will tell you if the story is true or false. And I just don't think that's going to work. I think the there will be a combination of we need a combination of media literacy, you know, teaching people how to read this new media um, and how to react. And by the way, I even think that some of the coverage of it is going to help that, you know, as people begin to notice. I know lots of people have said to me that, after, you know, they've begun to notice what is in their Facebook feed and what they see mm-hmm. and what they don't. And I actually think most people don't want to be fooled. You know, people don't like being taken advantage of. And so if you can explain to them, look, you're being fooled and this is how they will, they will, you know, they will, they will react to it. Um, but it's very important to think about different kinds of audiences. You know, so there's some audiences for which you know, fact-checking will work. And there are some audiences for which, you know, a media literacy, even as a form of entertainment, will work. You know, if you could do a, you know, a television series about information war, for example, you know, that would teach people how to, how to understand some of the techniques. Um, there's, for example, there's a very good um, Ukrainian group called Stop Fake, which does these very good dissections of the Russian media where they take apart stories. Mm. 
you know, dissect them and they show where this photograph came from and where that slogan came from and they put them together for people so that they can understand that, you know, that kind of program or television show or, you know, will work for some people. Um, and that's being tried in, in, in some countries. I mean, there is also, I think, a lot more research to be done. And this is, I'm actually now, I'm talking to you from the London School of Economics where I'm hoping to help launch some of this. There's a lot more research to be done on the nature of disaffected audiences and um, people who believe conspiracy theories. Why do they believe them? What would cause them not to believe them? You know, is there a way you could deliver stories or you could deliver news that people would believe, you know, real news? You know, I think the the academic community and the sort of data analyst community is beginning to move on this. I know of a lot of different projects right now designed to try to understand this better. And I'm hoping that within, you know, I didn't, as a, again, I don't think there's going to be a silver bullet, but I think, you know, we might get better at, you know, people like you and me might get better at explaining ourselves um, to groups of people who are inclined not to listen to us. Mm-hmm. If we understand what is the means by which we can reach them. You know, clearly saying you're all a bunch of Nazis doesn't help, right? Yeah. Or saying, you know, I'm right and you're wrong doesn't help. It has to be, has to be, you know, a different kind of conversation. And I think we're just at the beginning of understanding what that is. I would also say that, you know, it's really important to understand that this is an international problem. As I said, I began to pay attention to it a couple of years ago, but I'm aware of how it works in... And I've studied a little bit how it works in Russia, how it works in Poland, how it works in the Philippines. You know, the social media revolution is really quite profound. I mean, it's shaken. If you think back to the invention of the printing press or the invention of radio and what those things did to politics and to media, I mean, the invention of radio, who were, who were the first people to learn how to use radio? It was Hitler and Stalin. Those were the great users of radio first. What happened after the invention of the printing press? You had you know, the Reformation and, you know, the Thirty Years' War. I mean, the, the, the disruption in the way in which people get and perceive and process information has been really profound. And it coming back to an equilibrium or finding, getting back to a place where, you know, at least we're all having the same kinds of conversations about the same facts and we can discuss rationally what happened yesterday may take a long time. Um, and it may yeah. require, you know, it may require new forms of education. It may require you know, different ways of thinking about media and certainly requires a lot of, you know, better understanding of how of exactly how this works and why people are fooled by it. It's an enormous challenge, but there's nothing else to do. And I am very grateful that someone of your caliber is doing it. It's really fantastic <laughs> that it's, you're out it's there. Going to, it's going to be a project for, I mean, literally the next generation, yeah. you know, a generation of people, just like it took, I mean, it took more than a generation to deal with the printing press, you know, but and how that changed the way in which people could people got information. But it will be, you know, a task for our children to figure out how to deal with this. It's going to go on for quite a long time. No doubt. Well, listen, Anne, it's been great to talk to you. It's, again, where this conversation is facilitated by this crazy technology we all have access to. And it, yep. it's amazing to be able to do this. <laughs> Before you go, I want everyone to follow you on Twitter. I will put a link to your Twitter feed on my blog where I embed this podcast. But please just declare your uh, Twitter handle for all to hear. Um, it was pretty easy. It's at Ann Applebaum. All right. Please follow Anne. She is a voice of sanity <laughs> on Twitter. Thank you. Listen, Anne, good luck with everything you're doing, and I hope our paths cross in person one of these days. I hope so, too. Thanks a lot. 
So, Anne, this is sooner than I expected to have you back on the podcast because we haven't even released our episode yet, but <laughs> things have developed ever so slightly. I just want to check back with you. It's just been a huge news day, which, frankly, I haven't followed as closely as I might have. But this is the day where there was both a terrorist attack in London and a seeming frenzy around the uh, investigation into possible collusion. So, obviously, we're, we're talking about the latter. Is there anything you want to add to our conversation in light of what seems to be happening now? You know, what I'd, what I'd like to add is it's not exactly an I told you so, but pretty much everything in particular that we've learned about Paul Manafort, you know, whom we, who we already discussed earlier, was more or less knowable um, six months ago. So, you know, OK, now we know some details. We know that he actually had a contract with a Russian oligarch to, um, you know, to, to do influence peddling in the United States on behalf of Russia. But that was that was guessable. I mean, we knew who his contacts were in Russia, including Oleg Deripaska, this particular oligarch. We knew that he was working for um, a Russian, effectively a Russian agent politician in Ukraine, Yanukovych. I mean, that's what he's been doing for most of the last, you know, seven years. Mm. Um, we we knew this was his job. You know, we knew who was paying him. We actually knew. Um, from Ukraine, we knew that he'd been taking um, sort of, um, it's not clear to me whether they were illegal, but he'd been taking under-the-counter payments from um, Yanukovych's political party. I and mean, all this was sort of available information. It was available to the Trump campaign and it was available to us. And so, um, first of all, we have to assume the Trump campaign knew and didn't mind and maybe even saw this as a positive about him. You know, so it was, you know, we knew he had these connections and presumably somebody in the Trump campaign um, thought this would be of an advantage to um, Trump. You know, so that's that's the first piece of it. And second of all, you know, the, the news media knew and the, the public knew. You know, I suppose the the public doesn't necessarily know the context of it, you know, and the context is, you know, that Russian influence buying operations and or influence peddling operations, I should say, um, are at work in pretty much every Western country. And in some European countries, they've been very decisive in politics. They've helped create parties and sway elections. Um, and that now this method that's been used in Europe has coming to the United States. And we, sh we should have known that. I suppose most people don't pay attention to the context because the politics of Ukraine or Slovakia aren't of, of great relevance. You know, but the point is, it's, you know, if you, you know, when you're electing the president of the United States, it is important to try and understand and try and see the context. And that was it. So I would say that, you know, while we're getting closer to something that looks like, I mean, you could call it a smoking gun, but while we're getting closer, we're getting more information about, um, you know, who these people are and how they operate. Um, I, I don't think it really is fundamental, you know, fundamentally changes anything. Um you know, the, the, again, the Trump campaign deliberately employed people who had shady connections in Russia because they thought those connections would help them. And whether they whether they actually where there was actually a phone call where they said, OK, you know, when you release this uh, WikiLeaks material, you know, we'll do X and you'll do Y that I still don't know. But that it was generally perceived to be helpful is clear. Just to anchor that point, any denial of a sort we've begun to see that they knew the depth of Manafort's connections to Russia. That just seems on its face totally 
unbelievable, but, right? It's ludicrous. I mean, you know, I, if I know it, and I know it as a really as a kind of casual observer of you know of the of of Ukrainian politics, if I know it, um, you know, and I'm not even based in Kiev. I mean, I do pay attention to it, but. If I know it, then they knew it. I mean, it, it was it was the most famous thing about him, and it was written by several people at the time, you know, yeah. including me, but even more in depth by other people. I mean, it was it, you know it was like saying I don't know what is Madonna most famous for? She's most famous for a song called "Like a Virgin." It's like saying, well, I you know I didn't know she sang that song when I hired her to sing at my concert. I mean, how could you not know that? You yeah. Know? What's Paul Manafort most famous for? He's most famous for working for Viktor Yanukovych, who is a Russian puppet in Ukraine. Well, then, you know, yeah, he has those connections. And I, and I think he's worked for Trump in some capacity off and on since the 80s, right? It's not like he's a recent hire. No, he's also been around the Republican Party since the 80s. I mean, he's a right. he's a known person. I mean, he, he's been involved in a lot of different, you know, he's not been involved in U.S. politics recently because he realized he could make more money abroad. But um, but he he's certainly a known figure. He's been written about many times. You know, I have a memory of an article in The New Republic from probably the 90s on his company, Black Man of Word and Stone. Um, you know, so he's he's absolutely a known quantity. But we're, we're still with the same punchline here, it sounds like, which is collusion, though perhaps provable, is not really the core of the problem and failing to prove it doesn't leave us with some happy circumstance where now we we don't have to worry about Trump and his Russia connections. No, the core of the problem is moral. You know, the core of the yeah. problem is the Trump campaign deliberately aligned itself with people whom it knew to be, you know, with a regime, let's say, which it knew to be corrupt and authoritarian, which it admires, which many people in the Trump world admire and, and aspire to be like. And that is the model of politics and the model of governance they would like to have in the United States. I mean, maybe not. I don't want to exaggerate. I don't I, I'm not expecting them to start locking up dissidents or murdering journalists, but they certainly didn't mind it that that's what the Russian government does. And they certainly see the 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 mix of politics and business and the mix of, you know, the, the role, you know, the involvement of the family in politics and, and all that. They see that as good and they would like to be like that. And that to me is outrageous because it's a direct contradiction to everything that the United States stands for and a contradiction to everything the West means or should mean. Is there anything about the, the investigation now that suggests that one, that collusion that collusion seems likely provable, or two, that something other than collusion may come out of this which will will be actionable? I mean, is collusion the only target here? Uh, you know, I just don't know because I, I'm not seeing enough of the, you know, what the, the investigative committee are saying. Although, and by the way, we may have to think again about who's on the investigative committee. But yeah, isn't, isn't there some sign of corruption of the process now where they, they've come to Trump and revealed what they were finding in some breach of protocol? Well, also the chairman of the intelligence committee is, came came out yesterday and said, um, actually, you know, we were wiretapping the president, again, without providing any proof and without discussing it before saying that to the to the rest of the committee, which is bizarre behavior, again, by historic standards. I mean, normally, the Intelligence Committee is normally the the most, um, you know, the, 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 the piece of Congress which is most careful about what it says and what it does in public. And we now see that it's being politicized by some of its leading members. 
Uh, and that's also corruption of the process, yes. So, But on, on that point, in defense of Trump, a phrase I, I rarely speak, do we have to walk back anything we said about how outrageous his claim to wiretapping was initially? I mean, is, is it even imaginable that he made it on the basis of some intelligence that is now at the 11th hour coming to light? I mean, I see no evidence of that as of this conversation, no. I mean, all we no, I don't, I don't, nothing new has happened other than then, um, one congressman has appeared to agree with him, but hasn't provided any proof or anything. Was it an agreement about wiretapping or was there more generic surveillance of foreign diplomats who were meeting with Trump's people? Yeah, it seems to me he was talking about generic wires, you know, wiretapping of people or generic surveillance. Nobody wiretaps anymore, actually, but generic surveillance of people who were meeting Trump. But I, you know, I don't I don't myself know what that means. Well, okay, it's obviously an evolving story, which we are living in now, um, probably for at least four years. But in any case, I think it's useful to try to dot the I's and cross the T's up to the last minute. and. I thank you for your time on this early morning. <laughs> and late at night you're in, so thank you. Yeah, I, I'm guessing only one of us has been drinking red wine. <laughs> no, I, I might have had some last night, but as you know, that was eight hours ago. Well, listen, thank you, Anne, and keep it up. I'm sure our paths will cross at some point. Yep, thank you very much. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. you also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website, at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.